Welcome to Boil Down, the podcast from the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. I'm Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs and your host. With me today is my co-host, Sarah Shank, our social media queen. Is that hey. the title we're using this, we'll this week? This week yeah. All right, perfect. We also have joining us uh, Sean Ray, who's a partner with Baron Liebman. Thanks for joining us today, Sean. Thanks for having me. We are going to be talking today a lot about immigration and uh, specifically for the restaurant and lodging properties out there, the uh, I-9 forms. And so there's been a lot of talk, Sean, in the news recently about an increase in uh, the number of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, uh, raids, I guess they call them, or audits, sure. is now the, the better, right. the, the nicer the more, term. The more PC term. <laughs> that's right. Um, and it, that's really to determine if employers are, are kind of complying with the identification documentation uh, on the I-9 forms, filling them out properly, and seeing if maybe employees have, I don't want to say lied, but maybe put some information on there incorrectly. Um, from your perspective, have you seen this increase happen? And, and what is the reason for the increase if there is one? Yeah, so I, I've heard uh, from colleagues who have clients. Um, my clients personally haven't uh, seen an increase uh, yet. I know there is an increase out there. Uh, you can just look at the numbers. They publish the numbers if you go uh, pull some ice numbers. You can see how the increases have happened, and, and not to get too political, but frankly, you know, a lot of this this concern I think was driven uh, once President Trump took office and his sort of rhetoric uh, toward immigration and that type of stuff. But frankly, the the increase started prior to that actually. And if you go look at the 2013 numbers, um, you know, ICE actually made over 450 criminal arrests uh, in their investigations. They did to employers, you know, and 40 percent of those arrests were actually owners, managers, supervisors and senior HR people, uh, which is somewhat eye opening to to my clients and people in the, the uh, hospitality industry. So uh, it's the employees and, and the managers who are actually getting arrested rather than necessarily the employees. So of those 450 arrests, I think prob- I can't remember the exact numbers, about 170 or so were actually the owners, managers, et cetera. So the rest half. were employees. Uh, you know, maybe uh, identity theft or fraud or that type of stuff okay. that gets uncovered. Uh, but there is some uh, potential exposure for the owners and, and managers and stuff if if there is some sort of uh, fraudulent behavior going on. And so, you know, there was in 2013 there was uh, over 3,000 notices of inspection. You know, there's over 16 about 16 million in fines that was levied. Uh, so those aren't insignificant numbers. No. Um, you know, and that's since 2013. And of course, the numbers. You know, the fears these numbers are even going up above that. But it's not. Like like it was a non-issue prior to, you know, this last year. Sure. So how do employers make sure that they're complying with the law? Um, and and then maybe more importantly, what are employers required to do if an ICE agent shows up at their establishment? Yeah, the most important thing really is starting off on the right foot. So it's making sure the people that are checking the eligibility to work, the work authorization upon hire to get these I-9s filled out are actually doing it properly. You know, I, I have seen issues where uh, the person who onboarded all these people no longer works there, and my clients come to me, and they've got all these I-9s, and it isn't very clear whether any documentation was even looked at at all, mm. and somebody just wrote down the Social Security number, said, close enough, let's go with it. Um, you know, the old joke that, I know that number's good, is my brother's. Um, <laughs> he's used it plenty of times to get jobs, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, So it's making sure that the person who's tasked with uh, you know, checking that employment initial employment eligibility at the outset is doing it properly because if you have a proper I nine in place, your uh, audit visit's going to go a lot better uh, sure. when you've got your ducks in a row. And so it's starting there and making sure they know what to look for, what documents uh, they have to inspect, 
uh, knowing not to request additional documents above and beyond what's required or require specific documents, that type of stuff. And so it's having that person knowledgeable about how to complete the form properly uh, that's key. And then, of course, you know, if, if, if you do get one of these notices, typically how it works is you'll get a notice from ICE uh, stating, you know, you got three days to comply and what we need you to do is give us all the I-9s. And so you'll have time to gather those. It's a short time, you know, three days isn't much, but it's better than just showing up there and saying, turn them all over. Uh, in order for them to do that, they're going to need a warrant. So, Okay, so they can just show up at your establishment the, without the letter? They, they can. If they don't have a warrant, uh, hopefully you've got a sort of a point person established. Uh, you know, what I always recommend is have somebody there that's knowledgeable about the process. You know, and that doesn't mean they have to be uh, attorneys or senior HR people. It's just somebody who knows what they should do if this person comes waltzing into, the, into there and say, you know, where's, your, where's the warrant? Um, if you don't have a warrant, well, you know, we're, we're demanding our notice of inspection, which give us three days to go ahead and compile these documents. Because some okay. people don't keep their documents on site. You, sure. know, you, you might not have your I-9s there. Um, there might not be anything for them to look at. But, of course, um, you know, those notices of inspection are just for the documents. It's not necessarily to talk to, to people. What can employers do to prepare their employees for that? Like, say there's a raid, what are they what should they know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's you know, again, I think the, the key is, is getting your point person or preferably point people because if your point person's out sick, you don't want it just to, you know, that would be the day you <laughs> right. get a surprise visit. So, uh, you know, you want to have um, uh, several point people so that somebody there will be a point person. Then you want your other employees to know that what they should do when a government agent comes in the door. And frankly, it's good practice, not just for you know, the, these ICE audits, but, you know, Department of Labor might come knocking. Uh, Bully may come do an investigation. There's a lot of governmental agencies that may come to, uh, you know, do an investigation of some sort, be it wage and hour, immigration, etc. And so it's a good idea to have somebody that's going to be the point person, just have the employees know that, hey, I'm a government official. Well, you need to go talk to, you know, insert name here. Right. And they don't inadvertently waive some sort of, you know, requirement and allow them to do something that they're not otherwise authorized to do. So it's not that you necessarily have to educate every one of your employees on here's what we're going to do. It's you have to educate them enough to know this is the person you go see and you go talk to and make them handle it. And that person generally, you know, hopefully is um, able to interact cordially with the agents. You don't want to make them upset, but also knows knows their their rights and, and knows when to go ahead and get, you know, maybe employment law counsel on the phone or something like that. If, if somebody's there, sure. you know, say, okay, you know, let me to call my attorney and here's what you're going to do. Just wait here and I'll be right back. Sure. No, that, that's good advice. Uh, actually, yeah. So you're just saying, like, at what point it does make sense to hire an HR firm or an attorney? Um, what would you say on that? I'm sure most people probably say I'm a little biased on that question, but I mean, I think it's, it's never a bad idea to double check, particularly if you've never done, um, you never encountered one of these audits before, or if, you know, you want to do some um, preparedness type of work, uh, disaster prep type of stuff, and do a self-audit uh, of your I-9s to make sure everything's in line. Uh, it's not a bad idea to get somebody either, you know, an employment law attorney or some sort of senior HR a contractor involved, somebody that's done these before that kind of knows what they're doing. Uh, because what you'll often see or what I'll hear is from, you know, a client who says, you know, I did this audit, I found some issues with them, so I went ahead and re-verified everybody. And that, of course, is a little bit of a no-no. There's certain people you can and can't re-verify. So at that point, you know, they've re-verified everybody. They found a few people that didn't pass. So now they're sort of between a rock and a hard place of, uh, I've done this thing, which is probably a violation, and I might be subject to liability, 
but I can't really let him continue to work here because it's unlawful to knowingly allow somebody to work. So what should I do, Sean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, those are the hard, hard questions because, you know, you explain the risks of both and, 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 you know, it's sort of choosing the lesser of two evils, which is never where I want my clients to be. So I much prefer the call in advance. Hey, I'm doing this audit. And, and is it okay if I go ahead and run everybody? And say, no, 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 no. Let's go through the proper procedure here. And you can uh, help them avoid stepping into some of these these potholes along the way, these pitfalls uh, that may trap them if they've never done that. And frankly, you know, particularly in the hospitality industry, a lot of these um, small small businesses don't have senior HR people on staff. They probably haven't done uh, a self-audit of any sort like this and, and don't know of the potential harms they could be doing by going through it. You know, they mean well, and it's a good thing to do, but if you don't do it properly, it almost can be worse than not doing it. Right, and so in addition to the liability, there's the potential for discrimination, right? If you if you selectively choose who you're going to look at the I-9s, is that, is that some of the other things that you can run into? I- exactly. Uh, there's the concern about discrimination. So, you know, what you'll sometimes see is somebody who just decided to go ahead and run, you know, these four people. And it turns out those four people are the only four Hispanic employees that are there. Um, you know, maybe it was fueled by speculation that maybe those are the people that didn't have good numbers or whatever, but at the, at the end of the day, it comes off as discriminatory. You know, you didn't just select a random sample um, of people to audit. Uh, you didn't audit everybody. Uh, you only targeted these four people, and so that's going to open you up to potential discrimination claims as well. Sure. Um, so, so it's important to to make sure you've got your plan in place before you start these audits, uh, which is where a, an attorney or a senior HR contractor or consultant can be handy in helping you map out. Here's the process. Here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to do it. And then, of course, if something pops up, okay, what do I do? How do I fix this issue? You know, this person's number appears to have expired. What do I do? Uh, yeah, those type of things. So great question uh, as a follow-up to that, which is let's say you do this internal audit and you find that there are some mistakes on the I-9 form. Can those be corrected or amended once they're filled out by an employee? I mean, as, a, as an owner or as an operator, can I go in and, and make a change to that I-9? You can in certain uh, situations. So, you know, the I-9s, you know, sometimes it's tough to talk about I-9s without having a form in front of you that everyone's looking at. But, you know, if you were to pull out a copy of a blank I-9, you'd see there's three sections on it. There's a section one, section two, and section three. And section one's completed by the employee. Uh, So employers should never really be correcting section one. An employee may need to correct section one, you know, if they have different information now. And so they can go in and, and correct it. And, and what, you know, a, a good procedure for that really is to go in and just uh, strike out the uh, information there, just cross it out with a line. You don't want to remove the information or, or completely redact it so that nobody knows what happened. You just want to go ahead and cross it out, put the new information in an initial and date it so that it's clear when that uh, change occurred and, and that kind of stuff. If, if they're if you need to or want to, sometimes it's a good idea to have a little memo that accompanies it to say why we made that change. Um, notice that you know the eligibility documentation provided expired, so I re-verified him. You so know, that's an issue. You could do a re-verification. Yeah, why not just fill out a new I-9, though? I mean, why go through all the strike-through, and why not just do a whole new one? So you don't want to do a whole new one because that can uh, have the appearance of... Uh, 
document abuse, uh, which is the the term that the uh, you know customs and enforcement a- agents use uh, for making it seem fraudulent. You don't want to backdate I nines. You don't want to do that stuff. You want to make it seem like you've done the work, and you, you either you noted a revision was necessary because of a mistake on your part, but you've went ahead and remedied the mistake, which is going to look a lot better later on than just letting the mistake lie and hoping nobody sees it. Uh, versus you know uh, a, a Reverification is necessary now. Section three is the reverification section. So if you if you're rehiring somebody that you previously hired, you might need to reverify them, particularly if their work authorization uh, lapsed in between that time frame. And you can reverify them uh, in that section. But if you've already done a reverification, or maybe you have a really old I nine because that person's been your employee for decades, uh, you know you might not have the proper sections on there. In that case, you do do a new I nine section, but you keep it with the old one. And you staple them all together so that you're not just creating a brand new I-9 ditch in the old one because right. there are record retention requirements for I-9s. Speaking we, of, yeah, record retention, can we have employers do this electronically or how long, yeah, can they be stored electronically or do they need to be on premise? They don't need to be on premise. They can be on premise, off premise. Uh, hopefully, if they're off premise, they're in a secured site, not somebody's garage or mom's <laughs> basement or something like that. But, um, you know, you, you might have a secure records place that holds a lot of your stuff and you can hold the i9s there uh, you know I, I don't like to see them kept in personnel files you want to keep them separate from that um, and, and you keep them there and you can keep them in any type of type of format you want uh, they list you know on their on their website what how you can store them and you can do paper the old standard paper which a lot of people have you can do it electronically you can even do it on microfiche if you want uh, i've never seen that but that'd be interesting to, yeah yeah well, the, for the, some the, of our younger listeners we may have to explain that. yeah exactly google it yeah go to the library and try to look up an old newspaper from the middle of nowhere but uh, uh the interesting thing about that is i don't know why you would go to those lengths because if uh, the ICE enforcement agents come knocking and you produce the documents, you have to provide the means for them to view those documents too. So if you have them on microfiche somewhere, you better have a microfiche viewer that they can use to actually look through these things (laughs) and you can't say you're on your own because you guys don't have it government. So um, basically you're probably going to be storing electronically or in paper uh, form generally is how, how they work, but you are allowed um, your choice, uh, whatever is, is easier for you. So uh, to do worst case scenario, you do fail an audit. What happens? What are the fines, fees, penalties? So there are civil fines. There are potential criminal uh, aspect. I mentioned earlier that you know some some of these inspections have resulted in arrest. Uh, usually, those are the more serious offenses. Uh, those are the people that. Uh, are knowingly employing undocumented workers or have a practice of going ahead and exploiting these types of workers. Uh, People that make the honest mistake of, you know, yeah, I guess I didn't check his documents as much as I should have when I hired him. Um, But, you know, it wasn't an intent to evade the system. I don't have an entire staff of undocumented workers. It's one, one or two people. Uh, generally, you're probably not facing any criminal time for that. What you might get is a civil fine. And so uh, civil fines depend on whether it's an error on the documents or whether they've found that you knowingly hired or continued to employ somebody who's undocumented. So if it's just an error on the documents, your fine generally ranges from 110 to uh, $1,100 per violation. So, of course, if it's multiple people, that can add up pretty quickly. Sure. Uh, if it's a, a, a situation where they f- believe you've knowingly hired or continued to hire somebody after, uh, continue to employ somebody after finding out that they were unauthorized, uh, that fine can go 375 to 3,200 per violation. 
Um, and, and they look at a number of factors. Uh, those factors, of course, increase if you're a re repeat offender. Um, you know, so you can't just chalk up the cost of doing business to, you know, I'll just write out a hundred and ten dollar check. I did it again. Yeah. Exactly. Here here's my check. I've got it ready when the ice comes walking in. So uh, you know, they 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 don't want that. They don't want a situation where it's more beneficial for employers to just pay the fines. Uh, than it is to abide by the wage and hour laws or other immigration laws. And so, you know, they look at the size of the employer, the good faith effort in, in complying with the law when levying these fines. So, you know, again, if you've done the effort, made the effort to comply, even done a self-audit to try to make sure you're in, in compliance with that thing, if they come in and they ding you for one or two mistakes, you know, you're going to come out better off than if you just ignore things or, you know, knowingly, uh, circumvent the law. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, how long do employers need to keep these forms? Like former employees, you know, if you're talking about rehires. How long do you need to keep the a nine around? So it's a it's one of those greater of situations. So you have to keep it three years after hire or one year after termination, whichever's longer. Okay. So if it's somebody you only employed for a year, you have to keep it two years after termination because of the three years from date of hire. Uh, if it's somebody you've employed uh, for two years or more, then it's just one year after termination. So sometimes it's easier to separate out the I-9s into current employees and former employees so you know when those times do kind of lapse uh, so that you no longer have to keep those documents. But you do need to be aware that it's, it's sort of a shifting number depending on how long the person's worked for you. Yeah, do you right. have any other best practice tips like that? Just basic things that employers might not even think about because they're so bombarded with everything else. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, document retention is, is a, a big one. Now, I will say that most of my restaurant and lodging clients, you know, don't have a lot of documentation and, and don't like, you know, doing too much document uh, intensive stuff, largely because they're busy running their businesses right. and doing other stuff. Uh, but it's important to know the the best practices for document retention. You know, the I-9s are different than, you know, the, the payroll records or the personnel records and how long you should keep those. And so, uh, you know, it's important to know those. It's it, Frankly, it's, it's just good practice to, to make friends with an employment attorney who can, who can kind of give you sort of cheat sheets and, and codes. You know, there's different different thresholds for different laws depending on the size of the employer. And so it's always good to have somebody that's kind of looking out for you when you call them up and say, hey, I'm hiring six new people. And you say, well, doesn't that put you up over 15 people? Yeah. Okay. Well, now, you know, you've got different laws that apply than you had previously. And so you got to be aware of that. Make sure your handbook's updated to include that stuff. And and so it's, it's you know, nobody is going to no restaurant or lodging employer is going to be able to stay on top of every single law. I mean, that's sure. just their job is to run their business. It's not to, you know, and that's where employment law attorneys and HR consultants and the like come in. It's their job to keep those people out of trouble. And so it really is a two-way street. I can't keep you out of trouble if you're not telling me when you're going to go get yourself in trouble. Right. So. And and now we know the secret to how employment attorneys get friends, right? Exactly. It's all about the. It's all about that. So, it seems like a good time for us to take a, a quick break. Again, we're here with uh, Sean Ray's a partner and Baron Liebman. And if you want to um, send Sean an email, it's sray at baron .com. You can also go to the web uh, baron .com and uh, check out their website and get some more information. So we're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. Want to empower your frontline staff to provide the best experience possible for your guests? Guest Service Gold Tourism, Oregon Edition, is a tourism-focused course featuring Oregon hospitality employees using their stories to illustrate core principles essential to great service. 
The curriculum was developed by the American Hotel and Lodging Educational Institute in conjunction with Orla's Education Foundation and made possible by a generous sponsorship from Travel Oregon. Guest Service Gold Training is now available on-site with certified industry trainers, or your staff can take the course online. Learn more at OregonGuestService.com. Welcome back to Boiled Down, the podcast for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Again, my name is Greg Astley. I'm your co-host today with Sarah Shank from Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And our guest is Sean Ray, partner at Baron Liebman. We're talking about immigration. We're talking about uh, I-9s and what employers can do. So, Sean, I want to uh, go back to something that we talked a little bit earlier, these these audits now mm-hmm. that uh, the ICE agents are, are doing. Um you know, they, they can come in and they can get those I-9 forms. They have to either have a search warrant or uh, three days notice by letter. Can they request any documents, though, beyond those I-9 forms? And do employers have to provide them? The short answer is yes and, and yes. Uh, generally, they do request more than the, the forms I-9. What they'll also request is payroll records, uh, which kind of go hand in hand with you've hired the person, have you compensated them, and what have you compensated them at? Obviously, if if you're you know hiring these undocumented workers and not putting them on the payroll, it's going to look a lot worse for you <laughs> right. than you know an innocent mistake of of just not checking in on the documentation and the eligibility to work. Um, so they'll generally look for payroll records, a list of employees to make sure that you have I nines for all of those employees. Uh, oftentimes they'll. Uh, look for information or ask for information regarding the corporate formalities, the corporate form and the ownership so they know whose company it is, who owns the company, who's responsible overall for that. Um, They generally don't, you know, open it up and say, give me every single document you've got in here. You know, give me all the personnel files. I want all the disciplinary documents. I want all this stuff. It's, It's more, you know, focused on the I-9s and the related documents to make sure you've complied with um, all the I-9 requirements. So you mentioned two things there that I just want to follow up yeah. with you on. The personnel files, do you have to provide those if, if they ask for it? And the copies of uh, the ID that someone has used to, to verify, so your driver's license, your social security card, do they have to provide those copies as well? If you have copies of, of the documents you used, certainly. Um, you know, I, I always say if it's if you have a practice of copying those things, make sure you're doing it across the board for everybody. You know, you don't just... Um, photocopy somebody's ID because you're worried that they're, you know, a sketchy individual or right. they might be lying to you about something. Um, so half those, and you keep them with the I-9s. So uh, do they need it, to turn these over immediately, or do they have a bit of time? So it, it, you'll generally get the notice of inspection. You'll have three days to get these all together. So you'll go to your, your filing cabinet or your off-site storage place um, where you have all these. Um, you can request they go to the off-site storage to inspect them rather than, you know, coming down and sitting in your lobby to, to thumb through these documents. Sometimes they'll ask you to provide them to them so you can provide it to the, the local office um, for I- Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, rather than having them just set up camp in your lobby while your customers are eating or, you know, wh- what have you. So um, uh, oftentimes uh, it'll just be a, a request. And, and if they come in with a warrant, a uh, little bit different scenario, a little bit different sure. situation, and that's probably not going to be a random 
uh, visit from them. There's probably some reason they got, you know, they have to have a reason to get a warrant. You know, judges don't just issue the warrant. You're so. saying they don't just pop in with a search warrant. Right. It's you not know, an hey, everyday thing. Hey, look what I just printed out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I made it myself. Uh, you know, so th- there's some legal loopholes they have to jump through to get the warrant, you know, probable cause and that kind of stuff or what they're going to look or what they're going to find. So uh, generally what an employer would get would be one of these notices of inspection. If they do just pop in and they don't have a warrant, then you want the person, your point person to request the three-day notice of inspection so you can get the documents together uh, for them and make sure you get them what they want. Because again, you, you might not have everything readily available, particularly if you need to get payroll records and, and the like. You might not have access to it. You might need to go to your payroll company and have them print off a list of everything. Maybe you don't have a list of uh, all of your employees that you just keep. You got to compile those kind of things for them uh, so that they know who's there. And so uh, the three days is key. Of course, three days, again, is not a lot of turnaround time. Sure. Um, but it's better than right now. I'm waiting. So. And is there any extension on those three days? You mentioned if you have to go to a payroll company to get a list or something like that. I mean, can you say, look, uh, you know, we've got Hurricane Harvey going on right now or Irma and my payroll company is based in Florida or, or Texas and they can't get the records right now? I mean, that's an extreme circumstance. Sure. And, and I think that would probably be a, a good excuse if you just say, well, I didn't get around to calling them up until you know, Oops. last night yeah. and they're closed. So I, I don't have them for you. Uh, you know, I think a reasonable, you know, excuse such as that, such as we don't keep them on site. You know, we have a, we outsource that we've requested them and haven't received them yet. Um, as soon as we receive them, we're happy to pass them along to you, but you know, we can't produce those records without actually having them. Sure. And so, uh, in those type of situations, of course, again, because it's three days, I'd make sure that you know what they're requesting and you start gathering those documents. And if that means sending a request to a third party, that you send those requests out and don't wait on that. And the night before, realize, oh, we didn't even request these ones. Let's go ahead and make that request now. So uh, because you have your ducks in a row and have a plan for this. Exa- exactly. And, you know, you want to, again, you know, good faith compliance is one of the factors they look to if they're going to fine you. They don't, you don't want to seem obstructionist. Uh, you don't want to seem like you're dragging your feet or trying to hide anything. Sure. And so, you know, you can say, here's the request we sent out. We haven't received them yet. You know, we, we'll follow up with them. But, you know, I, you're more than welcome to call them up and ask for them yourself, but they haven't given them to us. So, uh, you know, the fact that you've, you've made the effort or tried to get those things that aren't, you know, necessarily within your, your purview or on your premises is, is, is going to be a good, show, good faith showing for them. Right. So are ICE agents allowed to remove documents like I-9s from the premises? So generally it's the the officials, the government officials who choose where the inspection is going to take place. So typically that'll be listed out in your notice of inspection. So when you get that notice of inspection, you know, it may, for example, say you need to uh, bring the forms I-9 to the, you know, enforcement field office in your general area and they'll look through them there. Um, which again is probably preferable to them hunkering down in the lobby of your restaurant or in the lobby of your hotel sure. and thumbing through everything there. Um, so, so you may have to do that. And so it's important to, again, uh, check out the notice of inspection, see what's required, what documents are they requesting and where they're requesting to look through these things. Um, are they going to be coming back here in three days? If so, let's make sure we've got the documents here on site. We've got a place that, that we can, you know, kind of cordon off so that it's at least, uh, you know, <laughs> obtrusive to the other customers that might be coming into your establishment. 
so uh, it, it's key to look at that notice of inspection and see what it is. Um, and as I you know mentioned earlier, you, you don't just have to provide the documents, you got to provide the necessary hardware or software to inspect that. So if you've got them stored electronically and there's some sort of encryption software or something, you need to provide software that can get through that encryption so they can look at it rather than just giving them a CD with all these documents they can't view on sure. anything. And so uh, it's important to, to make sure that you've got um, the the documents that they requested, the necessary hardware, software to to look at it, and then you know if you have an electronic summary of of, of what information is recorded on those I nine forms. So if you've got a summary somewhere of everybody's social security numbers or something, most people you know don't. Most restaurant lodging companies don't. But if you have uh, you know some sort of a summary of, of I nine information or or records then, you know, that also is probably going to be requested, need to be provided. But, um, you know, the notice of inspection really is key in terms of what are we producing and where. Okay. When, when does an employer need to re-verify somebody? I know we've talked about uh, some of the different forms of ID that they can provide, you know, your driver's license, social security card, those kinds of things. But when, when would somebody need to do a re-verification on an employee? So if the person's employment authorization documentation has expired, if it was some sort of a temporary work visa or something like that that had an expiration date on it, uh, then that person needs to be re-verified once that document expires. Uh, you know, certain documents, uh, you know, either don't expire, like a social security number and those type of things, and so you don't need to re-verify those. But if you have, if, if the employee's work authorization you know, will expire at some point because of, of a document expiring. Uh, that person really needs to be re-verified. Um, you, you know, it's important not to just, you know, think of it as the document expires and need to re-verify somebody. It's mm -hmm. that the work authorization has expired. And just because a document expires doesn't mean you re-verify somebody. Uh, you know, a U.S. passport is a proof of U.S. citizenship, and you never are supposed to re-verify U.S. citizens who continue to be your employees. Even though the passport expires at some point, their citizenship hasn't expired, sure. or their right to work in this country hasn't expired, so you don't re-verify that person. If the, the employment authorization documentation expires such that their authorization to work in this country has expired or needs to be renewed, then you re-verify to ensure that they are still authorized to work in this country after, you know, being granted uh, a new authorization or new documentation, you re-verify that person. There's a section on the I-9 for re-verification. Okay. And, and you can re-verify re them through that, in which case they must present uh, unexpired documents. Uh, it's from, you know, list A or list C. If you were to look at your I-9, it's got three lists of documents that employees can present to the employer. They can present, present a document from list A. List A would be documents that establish both the employee's identity and authorization to work in this country. So, for example, a passport uh, establishes your uh, identity and your authorization to work here because to get your passport, you need your driver's license and your, your birth certificate. You need documents from the other two lists to right. get your passport. So, <laughs> so the it's employee a, gets to choose those. It's not the employer saying, I want these specific forms of identification. That's correct. So uh, the, the three lists there, list A, which is your passport, your permanent resident card, et cetera, that establishes identity and authorization or the employee can produce a document from list B, which is a, a document that establishes his or her identity, and a document from list C, which would establish the authorization to work in this country. So for example, list B might be a driver's license, which establishes identity. List C could be a social security card, which establishes uh, authorization to work in this country. And so if they produce a document from list A or one from list B and one from list C and they appear genuine and, and authentic to the employer, that's good enough. Uh, what the employer can't do is say, you know, I don't want your driver's license. I really want 
um, you know, some sort of a other card uh, that you have, or instead of your social security card, I'm going to need your birth certificate instead. You can't pick and choose documents. It's up to the employee to provide those. And if they provide ones that appear authentic, you're not, you know, necessarily in a position to second guess those and say, well, you know, I really think you're kind of a shady person. So go ahead and provide me additional documents before I'm going to give you a job here. Yeah. Most and employers aren't experts in forgeries or it, it, document exa- identification. Exactly. And, so. and the person that's going to be checking these documents isn't going to be tasked with that. You know, oh, you should have known it was a forgery because uh, you can tell by the weight of this document that it's three grams too light to be an actual <laughs> identification card. So, course, uh, yeah. you know, if it appears authentic, you know, where, where employers get into trouble is when the names don't match. Uh, <laughs> It's a clear photocopy, and it's supposed to be the authorization, the authentic card. Those type of things are where you get into issues. It's not that this looks like a legitimate good fake, and you right. should have caught it. It's it's where you know somebody's using somebody else's card, or there's a clear picture taped over somebody else's picture. That type <laughs> of or, issue, or it's your brother's social security exactly, number. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, these these audits, I mean, uh, the hospitality industry, restaurants and lodging in particular, uh, are they? Um, at a higher risk of being audited? Is there is there some targeting of certain industries? Yeah, I think the risk is higher um, just because of the nature uh, of the, the employees that they hire. There are certain industries that just generally hire more undocumented workers than other, other industries. And that's just, you know, a, a number of factors probably go into that. Um, but a, any job where there's uh, lower wage workers, um, where people can kind of get in and do uh, work that doesn't require, you know, advanced education or, or you know, uh, too much skill, that type of thing, is something you can just, you know, come into the country and pick up right away. Those are the industries that are probably going to be targeted uh, more so than some of the other industries. So not a law firm, for example. L- the legal field, the <laughs> medical field, those type of things probably don't see as many audits as you know your restaurant and lodging, service industry uh, type employers, some of the agricultural employers, and those type of people uh, where you happen to find a, a greater majority of undocumented workers. Uh, and so those, you know, I would I would guess I haven't looked at all the numbers to see what the the breakout is across industry or across location, but I'm I'm guessing that as far as their you know, unannounced uh, audits and checks go, they, they probably do focus more so on certain areas of the country and certain industries, though that's not to say, you know, Minnesota is going to get a pass uh, just because of its location and, sure. and, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, you, you know, I do think they, they look across the board, but they do have more of a focus on rooting out these issues. And in terms of rooting out these issues and trying to remedy what they see as, as uh, an injustice there, they're going to target the people they think are, are you know, sort of the, the cause of this type of thing or the focus of this type of thing. Yeah. And you mentioned Minnesota, which is kind of where my follow-up was going to be, which is, is there a geographic emphasis? I mean, it would seem that, um, I'm not sure what our influx is from Canada in Washington or, or Idaho, but it would seem that coming from South America and Mexico, some of the southwestern states and, and Texas and, and Southern California might uh, have more incidents than uh, the rest of the country. I mean, it's it's easier, obviously, just to cross the border and be right there as opposed to travel up to Connecticut uh, from uh, South America. It, it, you know, exactly. And, and I would think, you know, frankly, even if 
the numbers of visits were even across the board, you're probably going to find more violations in those areas just because you probably have a, a, a larger concentration or population of undocumented workers in those areas because they're easier to get to and easier to disperse through. Uh, the Southwest, you know, up I-5 corridor, those type of corridors where it's easy for them uh, if they're undocumented to disperse and then find work uh, in, amongst those populated areas. Uh, that's where you're probably going to see most of the violations anyways, um, even if that's not where the majority of audits are. But I would guess that, you know, when ICE sits there and it's not, you know, just a dartboard they're throwing things at <laughs> when they decide who to go visit, right. you know, there's a, uh, there's a method to their madness. And, and what that is is probably focusing on industries and locations where they think they might find violations and so they can remedy that and, and, and you know, remedy that by those visits, but also maybe perhaps scare the people that didn't get the visits into compliance as well. Well, I was going to say, maybe make them more aware uh, if you're in one of those areas where you do tend to see that, um, the undocumented workers coming through, that you're more aware of making sure that you do verify and, and that you get that all your information and your ducks in a row, as Sarah said earlier. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's not anything new to think that, you know, a government agency would target a certain industry in terms of their enforcement efforts. I mean, you see it from the Department of Labor, you see it from other governmental entities IRS. when they do their, their wage and hour things. Right. They're, they're generally looking at certain, um, you know, swaths of industries because that's where they think the violations are and that's where, you know, they're going to find, um, you know, the ability to make, make a change versus just randomly auditing people where nothing's wrong. Uh, probably not a good use of the resources at the end of the day. Well, speaking of resources, this is a shameless plug for our buyer's guide right now. <laughs> guys, go on there, check out HR, employment law. We have resources for you. Yeah. Well, and again, if you want to get in touch with Sean, uh, you can find him on the web at barron.com. It's B-A-R-R-A-N.com. Or his email is sray at barron.com. Uh, and I'm sure that, Sean, you need some new friends, so they can always contact <laughs> you to find out a little bit more. Um, maybe you can give them some free advice, though. Uh, what kind of recurring errors do you see employers run into typically when, when we're talking about this verification? You know, with regard to verification, it largely centers around the documentation. And, you know, frankly, it's, it's not being proactive enough on the front end for these documents. It's not ensuring that we verified the documents by looking at them. It's, you know, just fill this out and come on into work. We need some bodies in here. And, and that's where you really um, can sort of get behind the eight ball because later on then when you discover that, you're, you're faced with trying to correct it. And, and you know, a lot of the, the, the issues I see, you know, recently, particularly with these ICE audits becoming more of a, a thing in the, in the industry and a more of a newsworthy thing to where people are actually hearing about it and going, oh, what if I get hit? Maybe I should look at my documents. And it's, it's not knowing how to actually correct them. It's, you know, just going in and, you know, as I sort of alluded to earlier, it's just, well, you know, let's run everybody through E-Verify and, you know, we'll, we'll root out everybody. And it's like, well, they're all current employees. You don't run current employees through E-Verify, right. like, you know, and so it's, it's wanting to do the right thing or meaning well, but, you know, not knowing how to do that. And, and that's kind of the, the big thing. And, you know, I always, I, I sort of joke with my clients, but I say, you know, listen, it's much, a much better phone conversation with me to say, I'm thinking about doing this. Can I do that? Then, hey, Sean, I just did this. Is that okay? <laughs> uh, you know, because one of those things, we can avoid the problem. The other one is really just damage control at that right. point. And so let's not get to damage control. Let's get to, you know, proactive planning and avoiding that damage in the first place. And so, uh, as you mentioned, it's great 
great to, to meet people in the service industry. I, I've got a lot of ties to the service industry growing up in a family of, of restaurateurs. Uh, but so I, I, I do enjoy that work with, you know, restaurants and, and lodging employers. Uh, but if they go to the, our website, we do provide, you know, free resources as well. We've got uh, what we call electronic alerts that we'll send out when the law changes, uh, when something noteworthy comes out, a decision comes out that affects how you do business or something comes out that means you need to update your handbook. We send that out via email and it's free to sign up. Uh, you just go onto our website, you know, click on the links and get there, or you can shoot me an email and I'm happy to sign you up myself. Um, but that's free. You know, we don't spam your inbox a lot. We just send things that we think are are, are noteworthy. And because I, I do a lot of work for the service industry, I, I focus some of my alerts on, you know, tip pooling issues and things like that that are kind of hot button issues right now uh, in that industry for those types of employers. And so, you know, some of the things uh, you see might not be pertinent to your industry necessarily, but a lot of the things, you know, do cross over in terms of the labor law with this, you know, fight for 15 that's been going on nationwide as yeah. far as, you know, what, what labor issues are implicated if I fire somebody who took the day off to go, you know, join one of these pickets, what's going on here. And so uh, it, it's a lot of good information that, you know, we provide free of cost to our, our clients and friends just because, again, we, we want you to stay out of trouble too. Uh, but you know we're there to help keep you out of trouble, and if you do get into trouble, so I like that you qualified that you don't spam a lot. Yeah. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's good to know. Uh, so you just mentioned you grew up in a family of uh, restaurant tours. Uh, what kind of restaurant did you guys have, or ha- uh, how many? So my dad and his his brothers were um, fast food franchisees um, up in Eastern Washington, and my uncle still still run the business my dad since retired up in the Palouse um, there a li- little north up in Spokane okay um, you know they had about 26 restaurants or so um, so good size so I grew up working working in the restaurants and, and all that kind of stuff and so I've, I've sort of been behind the curtain so to speak and and kind of know what goes on and so I've got that unique aspect to it when I'm helping people out is sort of I speak the language and I, I know what they they're going through and I know you know I've seen my dad in that position I've been with him when we made these decisions uh, as far as what to do. So I, I've kind of been on, on, on that side of it as well. That's great. Really helpful. Well, I want to switch gears uh, real quick um, and talk a little bit about the J-1 Cultural Exchange Visas Program. Um, again, we're hearing about uh, potential action by the administration and, and Congress about eliminating that. There's something like 300,000 people that participate right now in the J-1 Cultural Exchange uh, Program. Um, I know that that may be under fire by the Trump administration. What what can you tell us about what's going on with that right now, Sean? Yeah, so that's, you know, sort of been, you know, the focus ever since his executive order. It was sort of the, you know, buy American, hire American uh, executive order he issued that has sort of sought to uh, fix what this administration sees as an exploitation of these visa worker programs. And they've done it with uh, the H-1Bs and some of the other visa programs, too. Um, as far as the J-1 visa, that's sort of the program that's a, it, it's the exchange visitor program. A lot of, you know, younger workers, uh, a lot of students generally come over. So there's different prongs of the J-1 visa. And there's the, the summer work uh, travel program where somebody comes over here for just a summer gig. Uh, but there's also the school aspect of it. And my understanding is that they're not looking to cut the school aspect of it. They're just looking at the workers and, you know, they want to make sure that, you know, these workers aren't necessarily coming over to take these low-wage jobs and replace, you know, American workers. Um, you know, a lot of the people that get swallowed up in this would be like the au pairs that come over for, right. you know, child care duty and, and that type of stuff. Um, but they look at it and they say, 
you know, that uh, what effect does this have on the U.S. labor market and how many people, you know, end up overstaying their visas, which creates a problem. You know, I, I think if uh, they look at it and they see what they perceive as abuse of the system and they're, they're looking at how to remedy that. And I don't know that it's necessarily looking at shutting it down, but I could see definitely where they restrict the number of visas or otherwise put uh, enforcement efforts in place to make sure people aren't overstaying and, and that type of thing. And so that's what they did with the H-1Bs is that they reduce the amount that they're actually granting. And those are the, the higher level uh, visa workers, the skilled technical workers that, that come over. Uh, with regard to these J-1s, I'd imagine it's the same uh, the same aspect. I know no decision has technically been made uh, on it by the administration, but, you know, as, as sort of their, you know, jobs for Americans, they've been looking at all types of visa programs that have an impact on employment and, and what they can do to shore up what they see as, as abuse of that system in order to uh, hopefully benefit, you know, American workers and get them to work. But, you know, of course, the arguments on the other side are that these visas are being used to get workers they can't get here in America because of certain skill sets or people don't want to do the job, whatever it might be. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'd be shocked if they flat out just say we don't have any summer work visa programs ever again. You know, that's yeah. it. We're just revoking that thing. But I could see them trying to um, clean up the areas they, they find, um, you know, or they believe uh, are being abused by by these, uh, you know, either by the employers and utilizing these visas or by the people who get these visas and then overstay and, and pick up other jobs. Here. Sure. Yeah, I know in one of the articles I was reading on it, they were talking about, uh, as far as the tourism industry goes in particular, that a lot of these uh, workers who come in here either for the summer work uh, program or the internships, they're actually able to work beyond that summer season uh, into the shoulder season, which is unfortunately where some of the, the American kids can't because they're back to school. Um, so it does actually fill a gap there that you, you just can't fill uh, right. with, with the American kids. And I know in Oregon, we've got over 3,300 people participating in the, in the J-1 visa program. So yeah. um, pretty significant. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I think as they've done with all the visa programs, I think they're taking a, a long, hard look at it. Um, but I, I'd be shocked, you know, if they just flat out undid it, but it may be, it, you, we may find it harder to come by those visas, uh, in the next year or so if they, if they do make any significant restrictions on it. Um, but, but again, I think they're not necessarily focused on that's not a good program. We don't think it's, it provides any sort of benefit whatsoever to, you know, the American workers or the labor force or American employers. Um, but I think they, they see, you know, abuse of the system, which probably happens in, in every single, you know, visa system. There's always going to be somebody that overstays it or does something right. else or, or some employer that's looking to gain an advantage here. Um, but by and large, most of these programs are probably very useful to employers. And so I'd be shocked if they scrub entirely the program. But I think you'll see some changes as far as uh, either numbers of visas or, or enforcement efforts in terms of making sure people don't overstay and, and you know, go back when they're supposed to go back. Sure. Well, well, we'll keep you up to date on that as well here at Orla. And if you want to be Sean's friend uh, and find out <laughs> more about for more. the J-1 visa or, or I-9 or just about anything else, uh, got a background in restaurants, uh, you can find him sray at com on email. Send him a quick note or go to the web, com. And for us here at the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, you can find us on the web. It's oregonrla.org. You can always email us your comments, your questions, your feedback, uh, future topics that you'd like to see us discuss here. It's info at OregonRLA.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at 
Orla boiled down, and we've always got information there. So uh, we're going to take another quick break, come back with our advocacy watch, and uh, we'll see you here in a minute. Looking to help your staff succeed in guest service? The new Guest Service School Tourism Oregon Edition is the nation's first internationally accredited guest service training program for the hospitality industry. It teaches frontline staff how to capitalize on moments and actions that leave a guest both delighted and satisfied. The course features stories of hospitality employees using their actual service scenarios to illustrate the core principles essential to excellent service. Take advantage of the special Oregon rate of $30 and visit OregonGuestServiceGold.com for details. Welcome back to Boiled Down, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's podcast. Again, my name is Greg Astley. I'm your host, and it's time for Advocacy Watch. We've got a couple of items to talk about today, including the lawsuit that was recently filed by the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association against the city of Bend for diverting the city's room tax revenues away from tourism promotion and reducing the allocation for tourism promotion below what is required by law. Orla is challenging the validity and implementation of a recent Bend City Ordinance that amended the percentage of room tax revenue the city spends on the promotion of tourism and improperly diverts restricted room tax revenues to road maintenance. So what we're really emphasizing here is that lodging operators should be recognized as financial partners for local governments. That's what Jason has been sharing with our members. Um, So as tourism becomes more successful, we all know that so does tax revenue provided to local governments. Uh, that's for investing in projects important to local residents. And Sarah, I know that we've got some information here on the money that's spent on tourism promotion because a lot of times that's that's questioned in terms of um, what we spend or what Travel Oregon or Travel Visit Bend, those kinds of uh, groups spend on tourism promotion. What, what kind of numbers do we have for that? Oh, yeah. So there's actually that report from Longwoods International, and it shows that for every $1 uh, that you invest in tourism promotion, is generated in economic impact and $11 in tax revenue to the benefit of Oregon residents. And that tax revenue is things like fuel taxes when they buy gas or uh, when we get uh, other taxes from them as well. So uh, it's important information and it's something that we'll be keeping you updated on as we move along. So second off on the national level, what is going on there, Greg? Well, the Obama-era overtime rule is dead uh, after a district court overturned the overtime regulation in August and the Department of Labor, or DOL, decided not to contest the ruling. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals made the final ruling last week by closing the pending case that first put a temporary hold on the rule last November. So uh, as the National Restaurant Association's Restaurant Law Center was part of the management team that oversaw the legal strategy, we're pretty excited that that controversial rule is behind us, uh, and especially since it could have done significant damage to both employers and employees. And the NRA, uh, National Restaurant Association, has put together comments for the Department of Labor in response to their request for information or RFI. And so we'll keep you informed as more updates become available. Uh, so, yeah, what are the new numbers looking like on that? Wasn't before it was uh, about 24000 limit, and now it's looking like what? It was going to be uh, up to 47000 right? Correct, yeah. So we were just under twenty four originally, and then with the uh, Obama-era overtime rule, it was almost forty eight. so almost double. And we haven't gotten any confirmation yet, but the new numbers that we're hearing are somewhere around $33,000 per year for overtime. So significantly different. 
On the local level, uh, over 100 people filled a room meant to hold about 65 to testify in opposition to a sweetened beverage tax in St. Helens, often known as a soda tax. A lot of small business owners spoke out about the impacts it would have had on their restaurants and retail locations, actually. What size tax were we looking at here? So it was about two cents an ounce or 24 cents per can of soda. Whoa. Yeah, a pretty significant jump. Orla opposed the tax, citing our longstanding policy of not supporting taxes on a specific industry that don't benefit the industry directly. So where were they even trying to divert this tax money? They didn't actually have uh, specific uses for it. The, The thoughts had been that it would supposedly go for improvements to city parks, bike paths, and walking trails. Uh, Fortunately, the city councilors later voted five to zero against implementing the tax. So those folks did have an impact on the final vote. So if you haven't heard yet, we have started our fall round of regional conversations. Uh, So far, we've been out to Bend, Hood River, Coos Bay, and we have a couple more upcoming meetings. Uh, We're going to be in Florence, Tillamook, and Grants Pass throughout November. So if you'd like more information on that, go ahead and check out our website. Um, Go to our event section. And we're talking about tip pooling updates, restrictive scheduling, uh, the final ruling there, Oregon saves, and basically whatever is important to you. Uh, Come on out and get a chance to talk with Orla staff. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for folks to come out and get some more information, but also share information. We truly do want these to be conversations where we hear from local operators about what is going on there in their community and how we can help. Finally, uh, we've got a flyer available for those of you who'd like more information about the final restrictive scheduling bill. Details how a bad bill on restrictive scheduling became better with Orlo's involvement and in partnership with some of the other business groups here in Oregon. The flyer details the provisions in the bill from when it began to when it was passed and how many of some of the more onerous clauses were eliminated or mitigated to help both employees and employers. And for more information, you can visit www.oregonrla.org backslash GA. That's it for the Advocacy Watch. And as always, we appreciate your involvement in local issues and keeping us informed as to what's going on. Being an Oral member has a number of benefits, one of which I wanted to highlight today is $10 off our upcoming Women and Leadership event. Uh, This is going to be a professional growth conversation over whiskey. Uh, We're going to be bringing women together with Jordan Ramis, PC, Attorneys at Law. We'll be discussing gender-specific issues regarding careers, advancement, and entrepreneurship. Um, mind you, all over food, drinks, and awesome whiskey tastings. So join us for that on November 15th. That's going to be 5 p.m. at Bridgeport Brewing in Portland. Uh, you can reserve your tickets online at bit.ly slash women and whiskey, or check out our website, OregonRLA.org, where we have more info on that. Bonus, all proceeds are going to be benefiting the Orla Education Foundation, so even more incentive to come out and support the aspect of Orla that provides education, training, and advancement of the hospitality industry. Well, I'd like to say thank you again to Sean Ray, partner at Baron Liebman, for joining us today. His email, if you'd like to get in touch with him, is sray at baron.com, and you can find him on the web at baron.com. That's B-A-R-R-A-N. For us here at the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, if you would subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to the Boiled Down Podcast, we'd appreciate it. You can find us on the web at OregonRLA.org. 
And as always, if you've got comments, suggestions about future topics, or gripes about anything you've heard today, you can always email us at info at OregonRLA.org. And on Twitter, you can find us. We're at Orla Boiled Down. Thanks again to my co-host today, Sarah Shank, our communications coordinator here at Orla. And again, I'm Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening. <laughs>